Chicago is a city defined by fire. I believe I've said this before, and I fully realize I'm not the first person to make this statement, but the more I learn about Chicago, the more I discover the role fires have played in this city's development. Today, we're discussing the Chicago Fire of 1874. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we start, this episode not only deals with fire, but also with anti-Semitism and other problematic issues that were sadly prevalent in Chicago in the late 1800s. While not explicit in tone, this material may be upsetting or possibly confusing to young listeners. Listen accordingly. Less than three years after the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, Chicago experienced another fire. But the way it was viewed this time was different. Was it because of the area affected? Was it because of the class of citizens affected? Or were Chicagoans getting fed up with city officials who couldn't seem to get a handle on the city's problems? Hmm. For those of you not familiar with the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, here is a very simplified history of the event and how such an event occurred. Chicago 1871 was ready-made for a horrific fire. More than two-thirds of the buildings in Chicago in the early 1870s were made of wood topped with highly flammable tar roofs. City sidewalks and roads were made of wood. The Midwest was in a drought, having received barely one inch of rain between July 4th and October 9th. When the 1871 fire started on October 8th, just southwest of the main part of Chicago, strong prairie winds carried embers from building to building in short order, adding to the difficulty controlling the fire for the roughly 324,000 citizens of Chicago in 1871, there were only 185 firefighters and 17 horse-drawn steam pumpers to protect the entire city. And although the firefighters responded quickly, they were initially sent to the wrong location, giving the fire an even bigger lead. The prairie winds pushed the fires toward the Chicago River, where the fire found lumber and coal yards, warehouses, and bridges to help it cross north. The courthouse, hotels, businesses, homes, many belonging to the middle class, the wealthy, and the super wealthy, burned to the ground. The fire took the lives of an estimated 300 people, left a third of the city's residents homeless, and leveled nearly 18,000 buildings. The area destroyed by the Great Chicago Fire was approximately four miles long, at an average of three-quarters of a mile wide, more than 2,000 acres in total. On the same day of the Great Chicago Fire, blazes also occurred in three other areas of the Midwest, including the logging town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, about 250 miles north of downtown Chicago. 1,000 people perished in that fire. More on that a little bit later. 
After the Great Chicago Fire, Chicagoans did what Chicagoans do. They took to rebuilding the city. Wealthy Chicagoan Potter Palmer, whose Palmer House Hotel burned to the ground just 13 days after its opening, rebuilt an even better version of his hotel across the street. With better building procedures and fire prevention measures in place, he says with a question mark in his voice, Chicagoans tried to make sure the city would never experience the devastation of October of 1871 again. Some of the new regulations put in place after the fire of 1871 prohibited new buildings made of wood to be constructed in an area bounded by the Chicago River on the north, 22nd Street to the south, Halsted Street to the west, and all the way to Lake Michigan to the east. Now, if you noticed I said new buildings, well, existing wooden buildings in that area were grandfathered in. Temporary wooden structures were allowed with the understanding they would be replaced within a year, but few were, and the regulation was rarely enforced. At 4 o'clock a.m. on June 1st, 1874, a fire broke out at a wholesale boot and shoe store at Madison and Market Street in Chicago called M.D. Wells and Company. Uh, Market Street, for those wondering, was later eliminated when Wacker Drive was built. The M.D. Wells and Company building and the inventory within were a total loss. The origin of the fire was a mystery as it started on the fifth floor and there hadn't been any fire in the engine room for three days. Now, a fire like this at a building was pretty common back in the day, but the reason I bring it up and what stood out with this story is that one of the firemen tasked with putting out the fire was seen walking away from the fire wearing a new pair of leather boots. I'm sorry, did I say a fireman? I meant two firemen. Well, actually, according to news reports, it was thought to be more like a dozen, although nine would later be brought to trial in front of the police board on charges of disorderly conduct. The fireman claimed a medium-sized man who wore red whiskers, that was the phrase, wore red whiskers, gave them permission to take the boots, although no one at M.D. Wells fit that description, and the fireman conveniently did not get a name. On June 5, 1874, a column ran in the newspaper with the headline, Protection Against Fire, that read, London, Hamburg, Rome, and other great cities of the old world had to be burned down several times before they could be taught how to build houses. The people of Chicago and other American cities also appear to be utterly insensible to the experience of the past. If all the fires of the last 25 years could be properly mapped out and placed side by side, it is scarcely too much to assert that Chicago has been entirely destroyed twice within a quarter of a century. And yet, with the horrors of our great calamity still virtually before our eyes, Chicago entirely disregards the first principles of safety, that protection from fires must begin either by using little wood in the structure of buildings or by building so that firemen can easily get at the fire to put it out. Uh, the column goes on a bit and mentions the M.D. Wells fire. It ends with, The fire of Tuesday morning does not suggest very cheerful reflections. There was scarcely any wind. 
If the whole department could not put out one building, what would have been the extent of the disaster if the wind had been blowing a gale or if two or three fires had started at the same time? Now, events like this, the taking of the boots and the inability to snuff out a single building fire did not help the reputation of the CFD back in 1871. One month later, the Chicago Fire Department had the opportunity to redeem themselves. Tuesday, July 14th, 1874 was a hot day in Chicago with temperatures above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Rain had been scarce for some time. A strong prairie wind blew toward the city from the southwest. Conditions that were similar to the ones that preceded the 1871 fire. Just after 3.15 p.m. that day, a fire broke out south of the main part of the city. The city that had been rebuilt after the last fire. Unlike the fire of 1871 that broke out near a barn on DeCoven Street, the fire of 1874 didn't have a definitive starting point, but many news sources placed the origin at a small wooden shanty occupied by a Jewish immigrant named Nathan Isaacson near Clark Street and what is now Roosevelt Road that likely spread to a nearby oil factory. This area, by the way, is less than a mile from where the 1871 fire started and was inhabited primarily by Jewish immigrants from Russia and Poland and by a growing population of African Americans. It also included the red light district of Chicago, known as Little Cheyenne. The fire continued until about midnight, tearing through 47 acres until being brought under control. 812 structures were destroyed and 20 people were killed. According to the Chicago Tribune, quote, the First Baptist, three colored, and two Jewish churches burned. End quote. A few hotels and the Great Adelphi Theater also burned. The Chicago Historical Society's library, which was burned in the 1871 fire but had been replaced, was destroyed again in the fire of 1874. There were no Palmer hotels lost in this fire, no fancy mansions taken down, basically no big losses by the upper crust of Chicago. Sure, the 1874 fire was indeed on a much smaller scale than the 1871 fire, but what really comes across in the reporting is the disappointment that seemingly little was learned from what transpired just three years before. The day after the fire, the Tribune reported on the conflagration and took the fire department to task, opening their coverage of the event with this. It came this time not like a thief in the night, but during those hours when all are supposed to be on alert. When it is expected that a fire will be discovered in a moment, an alarm instantaneously flashed to an engine house and the firemen on the spot. It came at a time, just after the fire at the store of M.D. Wells & Company, when it was expected that the firemen, stung by their failure there and by the charges made against them, would have worked with doubled speed and fury. 
And yet, in spite of all these things, the fire has come and conquered and repeated the sad lesson of 1871 that in wooden buildings there is no safety for us. It has proved again the inability of our firemen to cope with the forces of nature, to limit the destructive fury of a flame once under fair headway, or to contend against the unbridled tempest of that fatal southwest wind. Another paragraph titled, A Weak Fire Department, read, There is evidently some weak spot in the Chicago Fire Department. It is either weak in numbers and machines or badly managed, perhaps both. Certainly, Michigan water will quench fire if promptly used in sufficient quantity. But Chicago doesn't seem to know how to do it. And of course, Chicago must suffer until she learns how. The worst of it is that those people who do not deserve to suffer are the ones who suffer most. An incompetent city government is what's the matter with Chicago. In recounting the fire and the area affected, the Tribune opined this. This part of the city consists of the worst rookeries imaginable, most of which are occupied as houses of ill fame. Now, I was familiar with rookery as it applies to birds and nests, but here rookeries is used to describe, quote, a dense collection of housing, especially in a slum area. The Tribune writer claimed that more than 500 prostitutes, quote, had barely time to escape with their lives and others lost magnificent jewelry and wearing apparel. To paraphrase another section of the Tribune, these fires strike those who, though they lose a little, lose everything. Unlike pretty much all I've ever seen in the countless hours I've spent going through old newspapers, the Thursday, July 16th Chicago Tribune front page is nearly completely covered in ads, primarily selling fire insurance, but also fireproof safes. Uh, 100 home lots in North Suburban Glencoe and various homes for sale. It seemed all pretty ghoulish in light of the devastation from just a day or two before, but then I realized these ads weren't intended for those who just lost what little they had. These ads were for those in other parts of the city scared by what had happened. Usually when I read stories about a tragedy happening in Chicago, there are news reports from other parts of the country expressing concern and condolences. While there were those, there was also this. The Detroit Free Press explained that one reason why Chicago fires get such a start is because the firemen take so much time to carry off and hide goods. And if the city would just furnish each one with a man and a dray is another name for a cart. I had to look it up. They could get along faster. One of the angriest groups to speak out against the city and their approach to keeping fires at bay? The insurance companies. I guess you can't really be surprised, right? Insurance companies write policies and due to lackluster building codes and an ineffective fire response, buildings burn and the insurance companies are forced to pay out. New York-based National Board of Underwriters insisted on significant changes to limit the chances of yet another repeat of a fire like this in Chicago. They wanted the size of water mains increased, a ban on the building of wooden structures in city limits, and for the fire department to be reorganized under one fire chief. 
The underwriters board insisted local fire insurers refuse to write new policies until the improvements were made. This forced the city to act, and gradually homeowners were able to get insurance again. As for the area affected by the fire of 1874, it was rebuilt, but many of the residents moved to other parts of the city. The Jewish immigrants from Poland and Russia, for example, moved into neighborhoods west of the river. The African-American community moved south to an area known as the Black Belt. The prostitutes and houses of ill fame moved just slightly farther south to a four-block area between 18th Street and 22nd Street, known as the Levee. I almost forgot, much like in 1871, where the town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, suffered a terrible fire at the same time as the Great Fire of Chicago. On July 14, 1874, the town of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, experienced a fire that devastated most of its original downtown. Kind of a weird coincidence. It has been used many times, and variations have been attributed to many people, but this really holds true. Here is the one I prefer from British statesman Winston Churchill, who wrote, quote, Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. End quote. I wish I could say Chicago has not suffered a catastrophic fire since 1874, but if you follow this podcast, you know that sadly is not the case. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Chicago Fire of 1874. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I'll have plenty of pictures documenting all the fun stuff discussed in this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages throughout the coming week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on those social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. If you have time, please rate and review the podcast. It really does make a difference. And tell a friend. I will be back soon with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.